Hello, everybody. How are you doing? Uh, this is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat. Welcome back. It's been a while. It's been almost like a month, right? Not quite a month, maybe, but it feels like a month. It's certainly three, four weeks, maybe longer. Uh, I haven't counted the days, but we're back. My name is Luke Thomas, and uh, I'm so happy to be doing this. Lots to get to today. We'll break down as much as we can of the Nick Diaz suspension. I'm also in, you can see I'm in a weird place. I'm in San Jose uh, for the Bellator Dynamite show. We'll talk about that. I'm told, although I haven't even looked at the fight card, except I know Gaethje Palomino are, Palomino are fighting in a World Series of Fighting, which is tonight, I think. So there's a lot going on, and uh, we'll break down all of it. Best place to do that, of course, is on MMAfighting.com. Um, I don't have my usual setup, so if there are some audio issues, I've got two windows open in this room. If there's some audio issues, just please let me know, and I'll, I'll do my best to fix it. Um, and, of course, uh, you can put your questions on um, uh, MMA fighting, but also be sure when you see this video, you can tell I'm a little rusty. When you see this video, be sure to share it on Twitter, on Facebook, on anywhere on social media. Just let folks know you're watching. You can always, of course, use the hashtag uh, chat rappers or get at me on Twitter directly at SBN Luke Thomas. So um, as you can see, this is a weird place. I'm staying in a house with, uh, you guys know, Esther and Casey, um, our creative duo here at MMA Fighting. They're out at a shoot this morning, but I'm doing this here. Obviously, I'm in the West Coast, so it's, uh, what, 10 a.m. my time? Um, so it's kind of early, but I nevertheless... Traditions must remain strong. What's the name here? Champion. Huh? Look at that. There we go. Champion. El Campeon. Uh, people always ask me why I have the sniffles. It's because I'm addicted to nasal spray. Doesn't matter the season. Your boy can't breathe without nasal spray. I know it's, I know it's bad for you, but lots of things are bad for you. All right. Um, let's get this going, shall we? And I pretty much know which direction we're going to head to first, but, you know, formalities being what they are. Uh, good year for the UFC and the future. Welcome back, Luke. Thank you. By all accounts, this year has been good for UFC business-wise with high numbers of pay-per-views, excuse, excuse me, with high pay-per-view numbers backed by continuing TV rights deals. David said the first quarter of the was the best ever, and judging by pay-per-view estimates, the others are probably too good, too. My question is, Will 2016 be even bigger? The continuation of Rousey McGregor shows, UFC 200, CM Punk's first fight, I know. Uh, return of Silva, maybe Fedor signing, possible return of Jones, maybe even GSP2, but that's unlikely. Who knows, maybe Wyman and PVZ each other corner. Sure, there might be injuries, but even so, 2016 looks set to be huge. Uh, lots of good reasons to think that that might be the case. Uh, but one thing I want to point you to that I saw during the break, shouts to Patrick Wyman over, I think, at Bleacher Report now, wrote an article arguing that if you looked at the numbers in terms of the shows that, that UFC has done this year, there's a few things that are happening. Number one, we all knew Rousey was a star, but I think we can all agree after UFC 190, obviously leading up to it, but then definitely after, she turned a corner as a star. So that kind of happened. Unexpected isn't the right word, but something approximating unexpected in terms of not her stardom per se, but the level of her stardom. So that kicked in for them. Obviously, they had that first strong January of 2015 as well. And then, of course, Jones did what he did. But okay, so you've got that strong first month. Um, you've got Rousey turning into what she became. Conor McGregor seems to be coming into his own as well. So that worked out for them. Hasn't been as many injuries this year. Reasons why, I'm not particularly sure. Maybe people are getting better in sparring. Maybe that will continue in 2016 as well. 
So he noted all those things, and I think those are all you know pretty clear to, to every um, dedicated observer. But another fact that he noted was, remember the UFC before the year started put up their full calendar. Well, we know how many shows are left in the year, basically. Uh, and they're going to be doing four fewer shows than announced. Um, and a lot of those are four fewer shows, if you look at where they are cutting, was from on the Fight Pass side, maybe maybe the international side. You know, they've kind of really dialed back on Fight Pass this year, I'm told directly because of lagging subscriber numbers, which makes sense. They can't be everything. They can't be a pay-per-view monster and a TV monster and a digital streaming monster. There's, there's just not enough talent to go around to justify that, especially when you're suffering with injuries and so forth. But his point was as follows. Like, if you look at those international cars, you may say, well, it's a lot of local donks. It's a lot of Royston Wees, who I believe got cut, by the way. But anyway, it's a lot of Royston Wees and, and versus, you know, Royston Wees' neighbor. That's true. But if you look at those cars, it was often at least one, maybe even two, sometimes even three good fights at the top of it. That is no longer the case. We're not bleeding those dry. So among the factors of some pay-per-view people really coming into their own, among um, fewer injuries, but also fewer shows has enabled the UFC to really stack that December like they wanted to, uh, has enabled the UFC to really, you know, put a stronger value proposition on some of these pay-per-views. And, you know, you can say whatever you want about it. This is what I've been asking for. This is what I've been asking for. So if they're going to do this, I will absolutely, and I'm already prepared to do so, dial back some of the criticisms about oversaturation. I still think we have too many shows, and I still think if they just get a bad run of injuries, that this could all be upended. But what it does show you is there's a reason to stack cards as an insurance policy against injury. As an insurance policy against, you know, who knows what kind of regulatory thing could happen on the USADA or commission side, not just Nevada, but, you know, anywhere. But more than that, if you stack a card, you know, you're going to get you're going to get your hardcores no matter what. But there's just a certain um, halo effect. There's a certain gravitational pull that happens when, as I think Patrick Wyman noted, Demi and Maya versus Gunnar Nelson could have easily headlined some show in Europe that they tried to push. They could have just said, well, let's keep going back to Germany. Let's, let's, you know, it's not legal in France, but let's say they tried to move into some sort of similar, but, you know, um, pre-burgeoning market. Instead, they're going to put that on a pay-per-view card when they don't really have to. And what does that do? It just creates a, a, a killer atmosphere around everything. It creates goodwill. It, 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 and, and I believe, and I've argued this, you can really make like a 189 atmosphere, a huge pay-per-view headliner. Yeah, some of those fights worked out in the end, right? I mean, they were set up good, but we didn't know Brad Pickett versus Thomas Lameda was going to be that good. That will bleed over into the next Fight Pass show. That will bleed over into the next Fox Sports 1 show. It'll also extend that halo effect. So I really feel like, yes, they've got, they got some things that happen out of nowhere, some things that maybe, you know, injuries are less because guys are training smarter. We'll see. But I also feel like cutting back the number of shows you just can't ignore it. It's a it's a huge effect. Remember when 176 got canceled and all those fights were shipped over to fights nearby and all those cards instantly got better? Yes, that was a pay-per-view event, but that was one card. That was one card. So so what we've seen is a dramatic in, uh, cutting just a few shows could have a really positive effect. He also noted, you know, several hundred, I believe, fighters made their debut in 2014. 75 have only made their debut in the UFC in 2015. So they're just the, the, the quality control 
is is working at the top with your Rouseys and McGregors and, and things like that, and your quality control is working at the bottom. This is what I've been asking for. This is great. Who could complain about this? Again, I still think there's a, there's a few more things that can be done, but if they can keep this up, I will drop the criticisms. But this is what I've been asking for. Fewer shows, stack the cards, and let's learn to work with that. If they can make that work, I can make it work. Nick Diaz. All right, let's just get into it, shall we? From your understanding, what is the likelihood of Nick appealing his case successfully? Well, um, boy, there's a lot of different ways to parse this one, right? So what you have to consider is, and I don't know, I need to talk to his lawyer to get a better understanding of what particular legal avenue they're going to pursue. Like what, what claim are they going to make in court about how he's been wronged? I don't know what the legal um, path is, particularly on this one. What I can tell you is that one thing you need to be prepared for, and one reason why I'm a little bit skeptical, I'm not, I'm not saying it won't work. Again, I don't have enough information to say it will or it won't. But what I do know for certain, you can hear my laundry in the back maybe. What I do know for certain is sometimes a state court, a district court, whatever, a, a, a local court for all intents and purposes, might look at what happened in the commission and say, it's not that we're going to weigh in on this because we agree or don't agree. What we might do is simply defer to the state because we don't want to get involved. And I think that you need to be prepared for, right? So a court might say, we're not going to in any way uh, hear Nick's claims or address Nick's claims directly, except to say, we give very wide latitude to another arm of the state. We don't want to get involved. It would take extreme circumstances for that to happen. And maybe this is the extreme circumstance too, right? In fact, I, there's, you know, if this isn't, I'm not sure what is, but you get the idea. So we all need to be prepared for that, not for a court to weigh in and say, wow, the commission was totally right. I feel like if any court decides to really weigh the merits of what happened, the commission's in trouble. I mean, they're in deep trouble, right? But what we, we need to be emotionally and just generally prepared for is a court that defers to another arm of the state because that's accepted practice. Um, there's a reason for that accepted practice. You don't you don't want a state government where every branch is overturning the other branch. It actually makes sense that they would be you know, very reluctant to get involved. Uh, there's a good policy around that. But what I am hoping for is that they can look at this circumstance and they can say, okay, this is, this is, um, you know, you can look at what the commission is doing and make a very clear case that it is bad for business in the state. It is bad for, for, um, the state's image, it is on its face, incredibly negligent, unethical governance. There's lots of ways to look at that on the merits and say, this is this is uh, appalling to a degree um, unforeseen. I mean, when you've got other state commissioners in other states who are very reluctant to speak out, doing so on Twitter, like the one in Massachusetts, saying that he was glad fighters were speaking out and that this was totally unreasonable you know, you've got a real problem on your hands. Let's just go ahead and get into this Nick Diaz thing if we can, because there's there's so much to this. Um, I'm not exactly sure where to start because the question is sort of a, a, a different scenario. Someone's asking. Someone's also asking, would, would you think the outcome of Diaz hearing would be different if it was in Cali or New Jersey? Definitely. In California, they'll just give you a 90-day suspension and a nominal fine and tell you to go on your day, or maybe a nine-month suspension. I'm not sure if it's 90 days or nine months, but either case, I think we could all be like, okay, I don't think a nine-month suspension is fair, but it's not the end of the world, especially for someone like Diaz who competes, you know, so infrequently. Um, 
a you know, nominal fine, pay for the cost of testing, and you know that kind of thing, right? So let's let's talk about this DS thing. You guys know I put out that video about three big takeaways. I encourage you to watch it for those who have. Thank you very much. If you've shared it, doubly thank you. Um, my guys in the MMA beat yesterday did a really thorough, excellent job. But I just want to make a few extra points if I can about what's happened here. To me, this is so funny watching the people who are trying to justify this madness. Um, it is they, they are the most pathetic people on earth, and and they are truly, truly the least critical thinking people uh, in our sport, right? People who say, well, you know, he broke the rules. Maybe I don't like him, but he broke the rules. Uh, okay, no, he didn't. <laughs> How about that? How about that? How about the fact that he, you don't actually know if he broke the rules, which is the whole point. There's so much to what's been discussed here that people have said, you know, I don't agree with the rules, or even if they agree with me that the rules weren't interpreted correctly, you know, but they're making this about to be marijuana, you know, or this is about Nick Diaz's drug habit. It's about none of those things. I've been telling you guys this literally for years. And every time you guys laughed at people who got, who got, who got hamstrung on marijuana charges, this has nothing to do with marijuana. This has nothing to do with Nick Diaz. This has everything to do with incompetent, tyrannical, totally unethical lunacy run amok at a government level. That's what this is about. This is not about Nick Diaz. He is merely uh, being used in this particular case to highlight the actual issue. This is not about marijuana. Marijuana is being used to highlight the actual issue. The issue is a commission that does not obey rules, that does not understand the rules they're trying to enforce. This is about a commission filled with people who are, they, they are, Pat Lundvall, in my opinion, is a dangerous person. You, you have no business occupying any job, appointed, elected, or otherwise, at a state level, a municipal level. You don't even deserve to be dog catcher in a remote village. If what you think is appropriate for what Nick Diaz did, what you can't even prove he did, is a lifetime ban, these are dangerous, dangerous people. These are dangerous people who will enforce things that don't exist as retribution, as a means of power projection. And the fact that they'll do it on the back of marijuana just shows you how far they'll go. This is not about marijuana. This is not about Nick Diaz. This is about the least credible most dangerous form of government interference at a regulatory level as it relates to mixed martial arts, um, you know, regulation essentially. That's, that's what this is all about. They will make stuff up. They will change their own rules. They will not follow them. They will act as if you are, as if this is some Victorian era 
we are mere plebeians holding up our bowls of clay asking for more gruel when none of that is written into the rules they didn't prosecute nick diaz for weed they prosecuted nick diaz because he had the balls to say you were wrong and anyone who thinks it has anything to do with anything else is a fool or or purposely delusional well he broke the rules um no he didn't <laughs> no he didn't the two tests that totally exonerate him are the ones that happen to have a water accredited lab and we actually look at the evidentiary claims that his lawyers laid out what they call to be medically implausible none of that was evaluated by the commission what was evaluated was his lawyer's demeanor or the very fact that he had the courage to stand up to them they're bullies they're bullies this is about them being bullies this is not about marijuana. It's not about Nick Diaz, and it never has been. He is merely an ex he is merely the tool that is making that known. But I've been warning you about, about this the whole time. Well, Nick Diaz shouldn't know to smoke marijuana. Nick Diaz is just the beginning. Get ready, because unless something changes, more of this is coming. Nick Diaz is not alone. Now, maybe this will be so frightening to fighters that they decide I'll just, you know, swallow this razor blade because it's better than being guillotined. But, but, but if anybody has the temerity to, to, to do what he did, more is coming. And in fact, they may not even take that much anymore. Just the mere fact that they were challenged this time could cause them to have a itchy trigger finger. All of you were applauding all those deep, deep uh, rules for, for steroid cheats. You think that actually has anything to do with steroids? That has to do with this, with showing the S on their chest that they think is there. It has nothing to do with actual deterrence. It has nothing to do with stamping out PED use in their state. Everything they do is about power assertion and coercion. It's got nothing to do with any of that stuff. Wake up. And, and it took a guy who had a strong case a strong case, even as a repeat offender in the state, to finally make people go, oh, wait a second. They're not even weighing the claims of this. They're just mad at him. Yeah. Yeah. And he's not the last one. And I love this whole argument about, well, he's a repeat offender. Oh, is he? Because if I'm not mistaken, they raised the threshold from 50 to 150 nanograms per you know, milliliter or all ones were so bad and creating so many false positives that it no longer makes sense for us to do that. As far as I'm concerned, they still don't actually know that he was committing in competition use the first two times he got caught and they changed their own rules because they were so bad they should exonerate him for the first two. Show me the proof that he was actually, the, the, the concrete proof that he used in competition the first two times he got caught. Don't worry, I'll wait here. Oh, wait, you mean you don't have any? That's exactly what I thought. As far as I'm concerned, those first two should never count. That's the first thing. His win over Takenori Gomi, not a no contest. That's a win. 
And now you have this third test where yes, they raised to 150, which is which I admit is much better. It's going to create significantly fewer um, false positives. All this is true, but for chronic heavy users, which is what he is, it is still scientifically scientifically unreliable. And I have to be uh, give a mea culpa here a little bit because I've sort of pushed the issue on blood testing, which I still think is infinitely more effective if a lesser or more difficult means of you know you have to extract blood to do it. So. I understand some fighters might have some issues with that. Okay, but even then, the more I've been reading up on that the last few months, even that's not all that reliable for people who are chronic heavy users. And it just so turns out, as I mentioned before, the state of Nevada, um, the police are authorized, if they're trying to see if you've committed a DUI, to blood test you to see if you have marijuana in your system. And uh, you know, there's a certain threshold then, just like weed, there's 150, I think it's five nanograms per, per whatever, you know, milliliter, whatever it is. Um, then they can charge you with DUI. Even some of the cops in that state are saying, we need to do away with this. Because what you're getting is for people who, let's say have a medical marijuana card for a real problem that they have. So these are daily, multiple time daily users. Even if they're driving totally unimpaired, their levels can still exceed what the state deems to be DUI when they're completely sober. And cops are saying, this is not this is not okay. One guy actually violated his probation as a consequence of it. Had to go back to jail, even though uh, he had a medical marijuana card. There's an article in the Las Vegas Review Journal about this. Even though he had a medical marijuana card and had to um, have, was able to use in the certain circumstances, obviously not driving. So because he had committed a crime, he had to go back, and I think he's suing the state now and trying to have it all thrown out. But look, his life has been deeply damaged by all of this. What the cops wanted to do is have basically a general sobriety test. Um, and in the state of California, if you get pulled over and, re and uh, um, clear a certain level on blood tests, that, that doesn't mean you're automatically guilty. If you can sort of demonstrate that even if the blood test shows something, all these other field sobriety tests that I easily passed, I clearly was not high, they'll let you go. You can do that, you can prove that. And here we have exactly the opposite, five years for an infraction they can't even prove took place. Has nothing to do with Nick Diaz. It has nothing to do with marijuana. It has everything to do with power run amok. It has everything to do with abuse of power. It has everything to do with a body that has no real check on them. You know, I called for a national governing body and I still think that would dramatically help the situation, but even then that wouldn't totally fix it because there's no appeals process. Nick Diaz has the money, for now anyway, to take this to court, okay? He's got that, but that's not an appeals process. That's not written into the sentencing, it's not written into the punitive guidelines, measurements that fighters can take if they feel they've been wronged. This is just, this is just a Hail Mary. And it's just a Hail Mary only available to people who can afford an attorney, that's it. There's no appeals process. That's why this commission can do what they want. Oh, we don't like you. Here's five-year ban. What you 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 came in here and you challenged us? Five-year ban. And then if you don't have the money to challenge it, guess what? That's not an appeals process. Look at Tom Brady. Tom Brady actually had an appeals process written in, and eventually that wasn't enough, and he decided to take it to court. But he at least had and Goodell overran it. But he at least had written in there, uh, and and through the collective bargaining, they've established this at least with you know. This would be different with the commission, but this would be with his employer, in this case, the NFL or the New England Patriots. But there was written in an appeals process there. Fighters have nothing. They have nothing. They have nothing. And 
what what should be abundantly clear here is whether it's marijuana, whether it is actually steroids, whether it is anything, they're not going to weigh the evidence. This isn't an evidentiary hearing. This is a hearing about the about the scale of your guilt, whether or not your guilt actually exists. That's what this is about. So all these people were like, well, Nick broke the rules or, you know, I don't even agree with the rules, but why are you smoking marijuana? It's got nothing to do with any of that. And it never has. It never has been. This is about a system of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? This is about the abuse of government power in the name of regulation. It's as, it's as simple as that. So, so the next time you see somebody out there saying, you know, Nick Diaz shouldn't have smoked, or I, you know, I don't agree, but you broke the rules. These are people who have just an inability to recognize the world in which we live. He never broke the rules because they can't actually prove that he did. And when he tried to actually show it to him from an evidentiary standpoint, they, they literally laughed at his representation, literally to their faces, laughed and gave him a punishment because they felt like it. That wasn't even what their protocols called for. Every last one of them should resign. Not one of them is fit to govern, not one. And as far as I'm concerned, in my opinion, Pat Lundvall should never be able to hold this kind of office in any state, not Nevada, not California, not in any 50 states. These, these are people that will do what they want because of this. With that said, time to drink some Champion Coke Zero. All right. Let me put that out here because it's going to shake this table. Uh, someone asked about the 100 signatures on the White House petition. My understanding is if it gets 100 signatures, that the White House has to address it. But it, look, if y'all can get to 100 signatures, great. If not, you know, this is not, this is what I'm talking about. These fighters have no recourse. So fans are literally putting on like whitehouse.gov petitions to help this guy. That's, 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 that's the state of fighter welfare. That's the state of an appeals process. Oh my God, this guy has been profoundly wrong in his life and maybe his career's over. Let's go to whitehouse.gov. Like, it's that, that should tell you everything you need to know about fighters. And I know all of us think, God, what glory, you know, being in that cage and, and how lucky you are to be an athlete. And some of those things are very true. You know, if you are fighting in the UFC in a pay-per-view main event, some things have gone right in your life. Maybe some luck, a lot of hard work, I'm sure. That, that's all true, but that doesn't mean that these people should be run over with injustice. That doesn't mean these people have no rights. That doesn't mean it's okay to just say, well, because this is going well, all these things can be deeply unfair to you. It's okay if some of us have better lives than others. I hate to admit it. I've got a better life than some, and some people have better lives than me. It's okay. They're allowed to have better lives because at a minimum, they're still entitled to all the same basic rights. They're still entitled to all the same basic fairness. If things go well for them on top of that, good for them. That's that's the way life works. And it might suck, and it's not awesome to deal with sometimes, but that's the reality. 
just because things go right for them doesn't mean we can say all these things can go wrong. And by the way, some things that people think go right aren't nearly as good as that as we think, but it's a different debate for a different time. All right. Let's see. Welcome back, Luke. Thank you. Uh, what did you think of Connor's behavior and antics at the Go Big Presser? Uh, I didn't actually watch the Go Big Presser, although I saw some of the fallout. Look, I've said this before. I personally find Conor McGregor's, uh, I, I don't know him, but I find his public personality, which I'm sure is a limited window into who he actually is. I'm sure he's a great guy. I find, personally, I find his, um, what he shows to the world, or at least what I've seen from what he shows to the world, to be a little annoying. I, I don't like it that much, but I think it's great for business. It's obviously great for him. Lots of people love it. I would never ever tell him to change it. It works. It, you got Don Cerrone making t-shirts talking about kicking leprechauns or whatever. And, and he's sitting there verbally owning a bunch of people. Like it works for him and he likes to more power to him. I don't enjoy it, but who cares what I think? You know, doesn't matter what I like. My personal preference is irrelevant. What matters is, um, does he enjoy doing it? Does it work for him? Seems to me like fills those two situations pretty easily. So good for him. Um, someone's asking us, so I'm going to wreck it. Um, someone says, have you considered interviewing to get his thoughts on the current state of testing Nick Limbo from the New Jersey State Athletic Control Board? Uh, no, because I know he won't openly criticize that commission. And so whatever private thoughts he may have, I don't, I don't think he would, I could be wrong. Maybe it's worth a call, but my guess is I, I've known Nick for many years. Nick, I trust completely. Um, maybe it's worth a call, but you know, I've called him before when I thought other commissions were bad and I, I don't want to put him in an uncomfortable position, but I don't know. Maybe it's worth a call. You might be right. Someone says, will the NIC, the Nevada Athletic Commission, actually suffer negative consequences, or will we all just complain and nothing good will come out of it? Um, I'll say this. You know, I admire Henry Cejudo's courage coming out saying he won't fight Nevada. Uh, Leslie Smith, who I met actually Wednesday. Very nice. I saw her ear. Looks fine. Um, I admire their courage in saying they won't fight Nevada, but you notice that these other big headliners aren't saying that for a reason. Because, and this is why the NIC acts like they do, because... They know that it's the fight capital of the world, certainly the fight capital of the United States anyway, or, you know, the, the Western Hemisphere. Uh, that's the fight capital of the world. And um, as a consequence, saying you won't fight Nevada just severely limits your career opportunities. You know, Las Vegas, is it's fun to have a fight there. It's like I don't have anything against the state of Nevada, Nevada. Um, I don't even have anything against the idea of there being a commission. What I think has to change is two things. One, the, all those members need to resign because they have no business holding office at all. The second thing that has to happen is there needs to be structural changes to the way in which the commission works. There has to be an appeals process for the fighter. There has to be some effort mandated that evidentiary claims are taken seriously because everyone's like, well, they made up their mind beforehand. Guess what? That's their right. Because show me where in the code they don't have to do that. I mean, yes, the code doesn't say you can judge based on emotion. But the way it's written is they have such wide latitude to do things. It's a structural problem. I think someone like Pat Lundball is just completely capable, in my personal opinion, 
completely incapable of uh, holding office. But you know, saying something like uh, you know, a lifetime ban, <laughs> it's just it's just crazy, crazy. It's a crazy, crazy thing to say. Um, but they do have wide latitude in which to act. And so unless you alter those regulations, unless you alter the way the commission is forced to do business, some of this won't change. You get four other people in there and they might be well-intentioned, but over time, this commission has developed, I think habits, all commissions, I, sh I should say, have developed a series of habits in their own ethos and culture about how they act based on the rules in which they operate. And if they operate as, the, as appointed judges, essentially, they're appointed by the, by the governor, um, and they have such wide latitude to act, that's gonna affect how they do things. So we have to change that. And that to me is a much more difficult thing. So yes, we can replace these people because they're totally unfit to govern, but even a new crop might have some problems. This is what I mentioned in my video when I said, the system of commissions is broken. They do a lot of things well. Look, you want a commission out there making sure some guy's not killing himself to get on the scale. That's not healthy. If they stop someone, that's good. A commissioner should be there when they're weighing guys in. A commissioner should be able to say, hey, look, this guy's got a 40 and 0 record and this guy's got an 0 and 40 record. They shouldn't be fighting. This is a good thing. These are great things. This is what a commission should do. And frankly, I'll even admit, like every other commission, mostly the Nevada Commission does that right because that's a thing that can be done really well, really easily, very much in a streamlined way at the state government level. That's what they were created to do. Hey, you promoter, you've got to pay these guys. You've got to give us make sure there's a, a deposit. Hey, you, this is a dangerous sport. We need we need to make sure that there are medical staff on hand, which you have to pay for. All these different things from the weigh-ins to the, to the doctors, to the licensing for the tournament. You want a state government doing that. You want that. But then when we get into the act of punishment, those people don't need to be involved at all, at all. Not just them specifically, but that commission any commission in particular, you need a, you need a body of experts to weigh in on evidence so that fighters have a chance to exonerate themselves. Nick D has never had a chance, never, never had a chance. And as far as I'm concerned, has never broken the rules in that state. Oh, he, he popped past the 50 nanogram level. You mean the, the most scientifically unreliable method, one that the own commission changed because they knew how dumb that rule was? Nick Diaz has never broken the law in Nevada or the, the regulations in Nevada. And you can't prove that he did. Not one of you, not you watching, not anyone on the commission, not anyone who hates Nick Diaz. None of you can prove that he broke those rules. As far as I'm concerned, Nick Diaz has, has, is a model citizen as far as fighters go in the state of Nevada. That's a fact. All right. Uh, Matt Hughes commenting on Diaz hearing before even seeing it. <laughs> this was awesome. Uh, how much does that say about his professionalism, especially considering he's a UFC employee and fighter liaison? Well, let's be clear. He's not a fighter liaison. This is a made-up title, as far as I can tell. This is, I, mean, I saw him in a Bellator event recently. This is a made-up title for him because, you know, he did the UFC a solid. I get it. Um, you know, he's one of the most important fighters of all time, one of the best weights of all time. I enjoy watching his fighting exploits. I feel like his courage under fire is incredible. Um, you know, he's hugely accomplished. He was important for the sport to show how, how great wrestling is on a personal level. He seems like somebody I would rather just never know. Uh, okay. Pleading the fifth, 
I've heard many people assert that constitutionality, excuse me, I've heard many people assert that constitutionally the commission cannot make a negative inference based on the fact that Nick Diaz pleaded the fifth. However, this is an administrative hearing, not a court of law. My understanding is the key difference between an administrative proceeding and a criminal one, or maybe even a civil one, is that asserting the privilege exposes him to a negative inference in the former, where it is prohibited in the latter. It seems like legally his Fifth Amendment invocations were out of line. Do you think his lawyers gave him bad advice? I do not think his lawyers gave him bad advice because I don't think he would hold up well under questioning. It's probably much better simply to answer the pleading the fifth, even if that carried uh, negative consequences one way or the other. Uh, I did some research. I'm not, here's what I found. Pleading the Fifth Amendment is supposed to, uh, even particularly in the state of Nevada, is supposed to be recognized as a right of the person using it, even in administrative hearings. So I'm not sure if that opens them up to the liability of drawing a negative inference. Um, I need to dig deeper on that, but let's sort of be clear about what's happening here. Him pleading the fifth, you could say, well, that made a negative impression. What made a negative impression was that Nick Diaz walked in the door. The whole pleading the fifth, they, oh, he better testify. Old Pat Lundvall there, fuming, bathing in her own self-righteousness. He better testify, why? He doesn't know you nothing, <laughs> right? Just he better testify. No, relax, Cartman. He doesn't owe your authority anything. Um, but what I would say is, you know, if you look at him, I don't think this is a guy that would deal with the the, the interrogation. I mean, listen, if it was legal to waterboard <laughs> Nick Diaz to get him to confess, if it were legal in the United States or by the commission, I'm not so sure in my opinion that the commission wouldn't try it, you know? Put a cloth on his face and pour water. Did you use marijuana? You know, gurgling and they rip it off and, all right, I did, you know? That, that to me seems like something that wouldn't even be uh, that hard to imagine. So the idea of pleading the fifth to protect himself, not so much from self-incrimination, but just sort of getting tricked up by um, questions, I, I think it's totally the right way to go. But again, this idea that while well, it created a negative impression on end, uh, on balance, I think it was better for him to do that and not, even if that's true. And I'm also not even sure that that's true, that they're allowed to draw those negative inferences. But I'll, I'll do some digging and see what I can find. All right, change the subject here a little bit. Fight IQ. Hi, Luke. Number one, is Cruz versus Dillashaw the, the contest with the highest combined fight IQ? Um, I certainly think that Dillashaw has a super high fight IQ, but I think a lot of what he's done is just, you see a lot of guys who I've thought have had not great fight IQ, not bad fight IQ, you know, but average. But what's, what they're able to do is they're able to make athletically good decisions quickly. Um, not so much because they're sort of thinking about things, just because, um, I don't explain this exactly. They just sort of have an athletic ability to help them guide themselves. Certainly, Cruz is a very, very good athlete. Maybe on par with Dillashaw, maybe not. But you know, they're very—they're all. Let's sort of posit they're both very high-level athletes. To me, Cruz is much more a scientist. So I actually would say Cruz is a much higher fight IQ, and I do think he makes great decisions. I also think TJ Dillashaw makes great decisions. So the answer might be maybe. But what I think you see a lot of TJ doing is he's made rehearsal look good. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's what you want out of a fighter. To me, Cruz is, has a little bit more wide open. I don't think he's as you know potent a striker in terms of the power, 
but in terms of the array of weapons and how he reads it and then makes decisions, to me, that's a little bit more thoughtful. It, he makes it look instinctual too, like the stuff he did against Mizugaki, but I guess there's a slight, I could be wrong, but it feels like there's a slight difference between the two. Does Mighty Mouse now have the highest fight IQ? I think he even eclipses Jones. Um, I didn't see his last fight. I guess you could make that case. I don't really know. Three? No, I don't think Mighty Mouse has a higher fight IQ than, than I think Cruz, you know. Fight IQ is basically the idea of who, who makes the best decisions in the middle of a fight, right? That's what, it's, that's what it comes down to. Um, Mighty Mouse and Cruz might be on par with one another, but it's hard for me to under, to, to imagine someone makes, you know, is able to just sort of choose things better than, than Cruz. Um, three, I think it's a pretty obvious trait that all champions have, but which champions have the lowest? Brock Lesnar had one of the lowest. Um, I mean, if you get a championship level, it's going to be pretty high, right? You know, who has low fight IQ, but has reached a championship level. Um, God, I'm trying to think. You know what? You can actually make a case that Jones sometimes has a low fight IQ. I don't think that he does. Right? I think I actually think it's a pretty high one, but sometimes he takes risks, unnecessary ones, to prove a point. And so far, it hasn't cost him, but it might one day. Uh, so it says, Scott Coker, was the UFC foolish to not use him when they had him under contract? Look, from what I understand, I mean, Coker did his job as he was contractually obligated to do, but I, I don't know that he was really my understanding is he wasn't really well liked in the organization, maybe for reasons that are fair, maybe for reasons that are unfair. I don't, I don't have close enough proximity to know, but I do know that there was a little bit of that, you know. Um, so it was never going to work anyway. But it, I will say, you know, one thing that has really amazed me about Scott Coker is that one way you can define success in mixed martial arts are sort of many, many ways, right? But one way, particularly as a promoter, is longevity, right? Look, look how long they're around doing things of consequence. And if you look at Scott Coker, through ups and downs, he has somehow, he's like a cat, man. He somehow manages to land right back on his feet. Here he is, able to bring a dynamite show with MMA and kickboxing, you know, on Spike TV. If someone had told you that was possible, oh, and by the way, it might be a sellout here. I'm told it's going to be, the based on the, based on the way that the seating works, you know, with the ring in the cage, and they have a, they have a, they have, uh, I tweeted the picture, they have the ramp and they have the big screens behind. So they've had to close off a fair number of seats. So I think a sellout would be just under 14. Uh, I'm told that they're beyond 12 and uh, they may even sell out. And that um, this is quote, this is from an inside, deep inside source. They told me it is by far the biggest Bellator gate in history, by far. Beats the last tent pole, beats the rampage of the wall, beats everything by, by, by a huge amount. So when you, if I had told you that when you found out Strikeforce got sold and had been, you know, and then got strip mined right before Strikeforce had died, if I had told you that was going to happen, you'd be like, you're crazy, you know, but here he is, you know, here he is back on his feet. Pretty remarkable. Says, I think it's kind of embarrassing on the UFC and Dana White's part that they didn't come out to Nick's defense, nor make a comment towards the situation. Take the subjective morality out of it. The NSAC took away one of your top pay-per-view attractions and made him a liability. NSAC is effing with your business. Say something, even if it's inexorable. So uh, I, I think I heard, maybe it was Ben Fulcher, Chad Dundas. I can't remember who it was. Maybe it wasn't even them. 
but they had said that you know there are probably going to be some phone calls behind the scenes not so much in in public eye if that's the case then i understand that um i also think that there should have been some kind of comment made but look guys like you can say fighters are trapped too and, and the ufc has more leverage because they bring a lot of business to nevada and you know obviously mark ratner who i respect and like very much um you know he has a relationship with the commission as the head of regulatory affairs for the ufc so there's a lot of back channel i think um work that can be done but you know what if the commission decides i don't think they would be so foolish as to do anything to the ufc but these are people that thought a, a guy who is maybe not guilty ever of doing anything in that state of likely not guilty ever in that state certainly no way you can prove right um they thought it was worth a lifetime ban for him for a, a substance we all agree and they agree is not performance enhancing you know these are people that are totally un incapable incapable of governing totally incapable um the UFC's kind of stuck right i mean i i think they should have said something too if they're not saying something because they're working things behind the scenes okay i can live with that but you can get mad at ufc all you want they're at their mercy too man not as much as fighters, not nearly as much as individual fighters. But, you know, I asked Scott Coker about it yesterday. I was like, oh, would you consider not going to Nevada? He was like, I'll go to Nevada tomorrow. You know, it's promoters have a very different view of things, you know, and you can hate it. I'm not telling you to love it, but them's the breaks. Uh, Van Zandt versus Calderwood for five rounds. Who you got? Am I the only one who thinks Van Zandt mauls JoJo in a one-sided affair? You know what? I, I wouldn't have said that when things first started. Uh, and I still haven't seen Van Zandt versus Hoochie Fight um, Chambers because I was on vacation. But, you know, Van Zandt gets herself into – she does not have a particularly high fight IQ. You know, not yet anyway because she's younger. She's 21, right? I mean, she'll figure it out. I'm not saying that because when you see someone has a poor fight IQ, sometimes guys are just born with it and other ones develop it over time. I think she'll be one that develops develops it over time because what her style now she's a little bit Rousey-ish in this way. I'm not comparing her to Rousey, but one of the reasons why Rousey's so good is because she likes to create chaos and she makes excellent decisions in the chaos. Yeah, she might eat a few punches along the way. People always talk about that, but you know, that's liability. That could be a problem against someone like Cyborg if that fight ever happens. But basically, against her contemporaries at 135, it's not a liability, not a real one anyway, not right now. And then she can just do her game. Van Zen does that a little bit. She just kind of. I, I feel like um, I, I, I don't want to make a, a wide theory about this, but I feel like physical pressure on the women's game um, for now, even with costs associated with the style where you're just marauding into people, it has some effectiveness. Uh, maybe that's just temporary. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just these two fighters. I, I'm willing to take feedback about whether or not you guys agree with that theory. I'm just trying to think. I'm just trying to think in real time here. But it seems like you can get away with that a little bit. And that's it. that isn't to say that you have no skills. I mean, you can maraud into someone to then change the landscape where now all of your skills that you've developed work much better. You know? But I feel like these high-intensity pressure styles, they, there's a lot of evidence that at least you know, at what we've seen, with these two women anyway, it kind of works in Cyborg too. But Cyborg, of course, has big punching power. But um, as far as John Calderwood, you know, I feel like she's a slow starter. She only she has been in the UFC. And Van Zandt makes mistakes, but she, man, she hustles, man. She hustles. And so combined with her burgeoning skill set and the momentum she's got and just the physical intense pressure she puts on people, 
I like her to win. I like her to win. I think it's a good fight. And I told all you donks, you were complaining. Oh, is this a step back? What about Alex Chambers? What about what about Alex Chambers? You know, whether you like that fight or not, if she won it, and she of course was going to probably in all likelihood anyway, it was never going to be forever that Van Sant was going to be fighting people of that caliber. Like you're going to move up, and she's 21. Well, now she's got Joanne Calderwood. Is anyone complaining about that? I don't think so. So, you know, not every fight can be the most important, you know, building block ever. It's not like Conor McGregor where it's like very, um, you know, very manicured in the way that he moved up. Important fights, tougher fights, difficult fights, still very manicured, you know. But again, which I think is a good thing. With Dillashaw versus Cruz official, who is your early pick? You know, um, someone says, by the way, Dillashaw opened up as a minus 150 favorite. By the way, I have no problem with that. You know, I'm very partial to Cruz because I just think so highly of his of his uh, abilities. But, you know, he's been out for a very long time. But the, the earlier absence and now this one, obviously he looked tremendous against Mizugaki, but you just never know. So I think giving the, the nod to someone like TJ Dillashaw, who has been looking tremendous, who took the number one contender and just demolished him. And making this guy the, you know, slight favorite, I don't really have much of an issue with it. I'm not saying it's accurate. I'm not saying it's fair. I'm just saying, like, it's it's a, it's a reasonable course of action to take. Um, I completely understand it, even if I am, you know, personally very partial to Cruz. Who I think is going to win? You know, I don't know, man. Like, I'm going to pick Cruz just because I'm a homer for him, and I plainly admit that. But, you know, like the rest of you, I've got the same questions. Like, how is he going to look? And how's he going to deal with the footwork of Tito Dillashaw? How's he going to take it away from him? Or is he not? Is he going to make it a wrestling match? And if so, how's he going to do that? You know, because Cruz can wrestle better than Hennon Burrell can. So, I don't know. Someone says, if you want to rep me, what is he up to? It's always funny when I come to these Bellator events. I don't come to too many. I've been to, let's see. I've been to, like, I don't know four or five Bellator fights in my life. Maybe, maybe not even that many. Let's see. I went to Rampage. Yeah, this is my fourth Bellator event. Um, and every time you come, even when it was during the Bjorn Revney era, Bjorn still is talked about. I mean, less and less, you know, as time goes on. But no one knows. There's basically a new PR staff in Bellator. The old one is, is, has all essentially moved on. And, um, and I talked to some of them. Actually, I talked to one of them just before my vacation. And uh, and they were telling me that, I was like, have you heard from Bjorn at all since everything went down? And he's like, nope, nothing. Not a word, not an email, not a text, nothing. And I asked someone else who's still currently working in the Bills organization in a different capacity about it, same thing. I mean, when they let him go, he ghosted on them. You know what I mean? I'm told that there have been sightings uh, in Orange County by People who say they've seen him, but you know, your guess is as good as mine, man. Uh, okay, Fedor, come on, Luke, give us a little insight into what you have. In your opinion, will we see Fedor in UFC or Bellator? Man, I've told you guys this that my hunch is Bellator, but I'm just going to walk it back to I really and truly don't know. And I know that's a deeply unsatisfying answer that you don't want to hear, and I'm sorry about that. It doesn't satisfy me to even say it, but the fact of the matter is, I just don't know because here he is at, um, Bellator, I interviewed him yesterday, which was kind of a career thrill, if I'm being honest. But I, I only talked to him for, like, I think less than four minutes, you know. It's one of these cattle calls, you know, situations where everyone's sitting around a room and you have to wait in line to go talk. And But it was, it was great. It was fine. I'm not, you know, 
I get it. The guy's important. He has a limited amount of time. Um, but okay. So, you know, on the one hand, you can look at that and you can say, here he is at Bellator doing stuff. He'll be at the Fan Fest tonight. Um, I interviewed Scott Coker yesterday and Scott was like, yeah, we went to dinner last night, you know, make of that what you will. And then you got Jerry Millen, who is his former, uh, former uh, Pride executive, long time antagonist of Dana White and Zufa. Essentially, you know, with him at all times. Every time I've seen Fedor at a Bellator event, Jerry Millen has been with him. And you can look at that, you could say, I don't know if he's going to UFC. But at the same time, you can look back and say, well, wait a second, you know, Sakuraba was at the event yesterday. He's not fighting for Bellator. Hoist Grace was at the event yesterday. He's not fighting for Bellator. Frank Shamrock's at the event yesterday. He's not fighting for Bellator. And granted, UFC's not trying to sign those guys. I understand that. But okay, there's old legends there. Couture was there, right? You know, Kung Lee was there. And uh, and you could say, you know, it seems reasonable to conclude that while Scott has a history with Fedor, who's going to pay him more money? And that money is as green to Jerry Millen as it is, you know, UFC's money is as green as, as Bellator's, and there's a lot more green probably where the UFC comes from. So, like, I know that there are all these, like, signals you can read into, like, oh, Fedor's here and he's not. And, I, and again, my hunch has always been that he's done with Bellator. I guess I'll stick with it because I can't walk it back. But I'm a little bit hesitant, you know, at the same time, as much as I want to look at the fact that he's with Jerry Millen and he's at this Bellator event and he has a history with Scott and Scott even missed they went to dinner last night, all, all, that, all that stuff. Uh, or two nights ago at this point, I would just be very, I would just be very careful about making any declarations because Fedor's his own man and he's going to do what he wants and he's going to take his time and, you know, <laughs> it's going to be what it is, man. Just, just, just accept the ride, you know. Uh, Chael is stating that UFC is working on Anderson versus Fedor for 2016. Anything coming from your end? I have not heard that here. But here's, let's say it is true. How big a bout would it be between the two with the proper financial and marketing backing from the UFC? Something like Aldo McGregor-esque promotion. Uh, it would be it would be massive, you know. The return of Fedor, the first fight, Fedor fight in UFC, the return of Anderson Silva in a way, right? Um, that would be a big, big fight. If they stacked that card, you know, with a title fight under it, I don't know if they would do that. Well, they'd they have to figure out something. But yes, it would be very, very big. Maya versus Nelson at 194. Who are you taking? Uh, it's a three-round fight. I might take Maya, but I've been wrong about him a lot. I'm going to answer this very briefly. Uh, ESPN's first take. Luke, Stephen A. and Skip once again put their ignorance on display when discussing the Nick Diaz situation. Granted, their show is mostly them trolling. Mostly. It's, that's, that's all that it is and trying to come up with clever sound bites instead of putting cohesive arguments together. But this kind of willful, willful ignorance about MMA in the mainstream sports media landscape is poisonous for the sport because this is the only exposure most casual fans receive. And guys like Steven and Skip don't have the ability to lay, have a layered discussion about the issue and thoughts. Okay, let me make a different argument about this, and I'll get into first take in just a second. If the casual fans of the world have misinformed views or just weird ideas about the sport, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do what we can to change the debate. In fact, much of the success of MMA has been the hardcore fans and then the power brokers together working to convince everyone they knew that this was a sport that could be regulated, that could be safe, that couldn't be enjoyable, 
and there was a lot athletically and from an entertainment standpoint to enjoy about it, right? No, 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 you don't understand. There's this, and, and here's the history of how it all worked. And you, you guys have had these conversations with people you know, I'm sure. You've all met someone who, who didn't realize what they were looking at, and you convinced them. And maybe some of them are even fans today. Maybe you're one of those people. Those are conversations worth having, and that's an effort worth having. At the same time, though, not every opinion that casual fans have should be or is even able to be policed. You can't police the world about their ideas. You should try when it really matters. You should try where you can. You should, you know, it's a difficult time to figure out what's what about what you can and fix and what you can't. Um, I, I, you know, I don't have the clearest roadmap for which way to go. But suffice to say that if people are getting information about MMA from first take and they have a sizable audience, maybe just let that one slide for now. There's bigger fish to fry, right? Um, also, as it relates to first take, you know, look, I do Luke Thomas's piss because it's fun. I know some of you don't like it. Some of you do. If you like it, great. If you don't, that's cool. I mean, I get it. Not everything's for everybody. It's fine. But I, I'm trying, if you'll notice, what I'm trying to do at the end is sort of transition into a slightly more serious point for my final bit. That's what I'm trying to do. And I did one for on ESPN first take because it was sort of apparent to me that, like, people like to show their bona fides and how smart they are by beating up on first take, which is the laziest thing I've ever seen. If you're out there showing how funny you are or how smart you think you are or how clever you are by making a snarky comment as you retweet Stephen A. Smith or Skip Bayless, you're a fool. You're a fool who has no brains and you have no real ability to challenge anyone in power. It is, it is, it is, it is, you know, farting in class to make your, your, your friends laugh, at, you know, for the teacher. That, that's, that's all that is. You know, you're not actually wondering whether or not there's real consequences in the world to real power brokers. You're not really doing anything. You just, you just want, want, that's all you're doing, you know, and, and it's, and it's lazy and it's easy, you know? So if you see people doing that, that's kind of, that's, that's the extent of how much they want to push the envelope in terms of power brokers in the world. So just let that be a rubric to you and don't watch like this idea of like, well, sometimes they have a point and sometimes they don't. Yeah, of course, man. Like I can just let my watch die and it will eventually be correct. You know, at some point in the day, who cares? Don't worry about that. Don't watch it. The only attacking their points and you see all kinds of websites do it too. You know, even websites I generally like don't watch it. That's the only way to fight back. That's it. That's it. Because watching it and being like, well, you're so wrong about this. You are wasting your time. They love that. They love that. They love it when you tell them how wrong they are. Oh, we're wrong? Thank you. Thank you for telling the world that we're wrong. Because you are making us the subject of conversation. You are making people curious to tune in. You are, you are part of the audience. If you are out there watching First Take and you're like, but you're so wrong. You are nothing more than the people in the audience at Mori Povich who lecture the negligent fathers who don't want to take care of their kids. That's your kid. You should take care of it. You're part of the studio audience, whether you like it or not, and whether you realize it or not. The only way to, to, to have a, a negative impact on first take is the last I'm ever going to say of it. Don't talk about it. Don't watch it. Ignore it. Connor's training. Have you been watching the new season of Tough? And if so, what is your take on McGregor's very unorthodox yet innovative training regimens? It's not regiments. That's regimen. Uh, could this be the future of MMA training to save fighters from unnecessary injuries and gym wars? I have not been watching, so unfortunately, I cannot tell you. But I, uh, 
Shouts to Ryan Hall, who has been a uh, I've known I met Ryan in 2005. He was a blue belt over over at uh, at the time he was with Lloyd Irvin, and um, I knew him when he moved out of there and established 50/50. He did he opened up 50/50 above the place the the guy who does my taxes, um, which was a small sort of weird coincidence when I figured all that out. Um, you know, I've trained with Ryan a number of times. He helped me with my bread cutter choke. Um, I roll with Ryan probably a dozen times. I got beat all a dozen times. <laughs> and uh, as you can well imagine. And uh, yeah, man. And I know his wife. Um, his first black belt came to my wedding. Like, you know, I, I, I will try very hard to, to keep a pre professional distance. I'm letting you know that there's a certain bias that I have, obviously, towards him. But um, it is nice to see him do well. Uh, let's go to Twitter for just a second, if I may. Whoops. Someone's saying, are many of the problems regarding the NSA, NSA, NSAC solved if the four people on the panel quit or does it go much deeper? As I've mentioned, that would be a nice start, but that's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. Uh, which fighter interviews you conducted that you enjoyed most recently at Bellator Dynamite? Um, King Mo. Actually, you guys should watch the Phil Davis interview. I really enjoyed talking to Phil this time. Phil's in a very unique position, I think, heading into this fight, which not a lot of people are appreciating. Um, who else did I enjoy? Oh, Zach Mikasa. That's coming out. I've got a funny Sakuraba interview coming out. You'll enjoy that one as well, um, especially the ending. Watch the Sakuraba interview all the way to the end. It's short. It's like four minutes. Just watch. Tr trust me when I tell you that. Just take my word for it. Um, Liam McGeary seems like a, you know, what's great about Liam McGeary, you guys ever, you, you know, about this, like this test in politics, right? It's like a voter test. And what they say is Democrat, Republican, independent, forget about that for a second. Let me give you candidate A and candidate B. And here's the litmus test. Not saying it's the most sophisticated one, not saying it's the best one, not saying it's the one that will lead you to the best candidate in the end, but it's the one that we use a little bit even at, a, at, a, at an academic level in some ways, but certainly I think the average person might use, which is who would you rather have a beer with? Who would you rather have a beer with? Let me assure you, I would rather have a beer with Liam McGeary than just about anyone else in Bellator. What a fun, nice guy. <laughs> he's He just likes to joke around. You know, when it's time to compete, he's obviously a very, very serious guy, but um, he's funny, he's lighthearted, he's easy to talk to. I think he's enjoying the fruits of his labors, but he's not taking any of them for granted. Um, a very down-to-earth guy. There's a lot to like about Liam McGeary. And, you know, I don't want to take a stance and I want him to win or I want Tito Ortiz to win. I think there's a lot of value either way for, for the sport, for Bellator, for the winner eventually. But, you know, Liam McGeary passes the who would I rather have a beer test very quickly. Um, what are the logistical hurdles preventing the UFC from going to Hawaii? Uh, if they want to go on fight pass, nothing. But everything else, there is the time. And also there's a major tax on promoters who want to do shows there that the UFC, I mean, you can do shows there. I think PXC has done some shows there and other promoters as well. But um, there's a heavy tax that's required promoters to pay, I believe. Although maybe I, that got lifted. But historically, it's been the timing and then the financial costs associated with going there. 
could the UFC be uh, posturing to get Fedor and use him to open up the Russian market? Sure. If you're going to have Fedor, why else wouldn't you? I mean, use him while you got him, right? Of the 49 states, MMA is legal, and how many have the UFC held an event in? I'm not sure. Probably well over 20, maybe even 30. Uh, can you speak about your meeting with Fedor, his persona, and where you think he'll end up fighting? People are like um, sort of into all that. I'm not really into all of that. We, we ascribe to him a lot of things that I think are there, but we ascribe to him a lot of things that I don't, we're just pasting on top of him. I was just waiting in line and looking for a chance to talk to him. And it was an honor to talk to him because I am so, like the rest of you, um, enamored with with what he's done in mixed martial arts, and I think so highly of him as an athlete that it was you know it was a, it was a joy to talk to him. But I didn't talk to him and feel like I was in the presence of a god. I was talking to him as the presence of a really accomplished guy. You know, I'm lucky in the sense that I've got the chance to talk to a lot of really accomplished people, but I don't I don't watch him like, oh my god, you know. It's I I wasn't like uh, have you guys seen Planet of the Apes? When all the apes ask for Caesar's forgiveness, they hold their head down, their hand up, and Caesar kind of like wipes it. I didn't, I didn't wait for Caesar to tell me he was home and wipe my palm. Will UFC be brave enough to have Rousey versus McGregor at Dallas, and McGregor versus, excuse me, will UFC be brave enough to have Rousey versus Cyborg at Dallas, and McGregor versus Duffy at Croke Park the same weekend? No, that's not brave. That's stupid. Uh, Frank Mayer wants an Arlovsky rematch. Again, I haven't seen the first one. I'm told it was less than less than interesting. So I don't think they... Uh, I don't think so. Someone saying, who could complain about this? Mighty Mouse UFC could. He's still getting screwed with weak undercards in terms of who could complain about the strategy to fix what I thought was a long-standing oversaturation problem. Um, you guys seem to think that what Mighty Mouse will just fix everything is if Mighty Mouse was put on a car with Rousey and Wyman and Silva and everybody else. That wouldn't fix nothing. Guys, he's an incredible fighter, and I think things can improve for him over time. And if something really changes, sky's the limit. But basically, he just doesn't connect with fans. Maybe for stupid reasons. Maybe for reasons that you think make no sense. Maybe for reasons that you do think make sense. I don't know. I don't really care. It's a fact. He just doesn't really connect with most fans. That's it. They don't hate him. They just, eh. You know? And again, I'm not asking you to endorse this fact with a fist pump and go make t-shirts. I'm just telling you that's how it is. He, that's it. Someone's sending me something. Oh, someone is sending me some of the Fifth Amendment about civil and criminal proceedings. Okay, the Fifth Amendment privilege may be asserted in criminal and civil proceedings. The decision on whether or not to take five in civil litigation should not be made lightly. If there is a pending criminal investigation or parallel proceeding, the client may have no choice but to assert the privilege to avoid incriminating himself. 
If the client is the plaintiff or defendant in civil litigation, the assertion of the privilege can be devastating to the case. Unlike in criminal proceedings where the invocation of the Fifth Amendment cannot be used as evidence of guilt, the opposite is true in civil proceedings where the adverse inference can be raised and considered in evidence. That's fine, but like I mentioned before, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant, you know. To me, it would have been way worse for him to answer those questions. So if you have to take a negative, I would say that's the much less two of the negatives. Do you guys think that, like, you know, Nick Diaz, who must have been teeming and seething with rage, understandable rage, uh, and you know, has an inability to, I think, not athletically, but in settings like these or in media, to act appropriately under pressure um, with his words, I just think you were setting him up to fail. This, you know, is not great, obviously, but uh, it's not awesome. Someone says, as a matter of correction, there have been UFC events held in 35 U.S. states, including D.C. There you go. Well, let's keep going. Uh, is Pat Lundvall the Kim Winslow of athletic commissions? Absolutely terrible, terrible performance by a suit. Well, I don't know if, I mean, I'm not sure what to make of that comparison, except to say, um, here we are again, a commission totally above reproach. You know why Steve Mazzagatti is still working? You know why? Because F you. That's why. F, F what you think. That's why. That's our reason. We can dress it up in other things, of course. But, you know, don't don't tell us what to do because... Uh, if Duffy beats Poirier and Chad beats Edgar, are you into Duffy versus McGregor if McGregor wins? It's a little fast for me, but I wouldn't be opposed to it, you know. Can another state commission give Diaz clearance to fight if they find the punishment egregious? So it's funny you ask that. Uh, my understanding is that Diaz can go and apply for a license in New Jersey or he can go apply in Georgia or Florida. They don't, the state is not required to honor the commission's request. They just do it out of courtesy, right? So they don't have to. So if I was Nick Diaz, I don't know what the harm would be. Like, what do you have to lose? Just apply for a license. If they say no, they say no. But there's, there's not much to lose. Um, but if you're asking, it's extremely unlikely that that would work. There is a long-standing precedence of commission, state commissions honoring the suspension of another state. They're not, you know, required to, but it is essentially unwritten law. Do you think Gust Gustafson could pull it off? He has the best lateral movement at light heavyweight, very elusive of the clinch. No, I don't like his chances too much against Cormier. But, you know, look, we've all been wrong a thousand times about fights we were sure about. Anything can happen. Cormier is getting older. But if I had to guess, I would guess that Cormier is going to have his way with him eventually, if not earlier than later. Uh, if the first and third tests through accredited water facilities were clean, why wasn't the second test thrown out? Because the commission is not required to make any evidentiary findings. Nick Diaz walked into the room guilty. The question was what he was going to do about it. That's it. He was guilty. There is no, there is no exoneration with them. Even if you're not actually guilty. So you saw that boxer who had taken something over the counter and brought it with him and had an attorney and asked for lenience. He only got 20% of his 
purse find and a seven month suspension. I'm sure that's not awesome, but you know, he basically just begged for clemency and he showed up in a suit and you know, he was obviously a very bright guy. And he was, I think he was a college graduate and you know, he went up there and he made a, made a nice representation of himself and begged for clemency and it more or less worked, you know, but Nick Diaz wasn't about that life because he didn't feel like he did anything wrong. And he's right. There's no real hardcore evidence to suggest that he did anything wrong. Not now and not even the first two times. Again, people are like, well, he broke the rules three times. I can easily make a case to you that he didn't. Not even, not even very difficult. Not even difficult. Very simple. And they even, they even changed their rules after the first two times to make it harder the, second, the third time to get, to get a false positive which to me means the first two ones should be, he should be totally exonerated for. Because they essentially said, those tests are not good enough to count. Oh, they're not good enough to count anymore. Well, if they're not good enough to count anymore, then they were never good enough to count. Just want to make that known. Um, did Paige Van Zandt make a mistake in not going to the, the Gibbler route of finding out her contract and shopping around? I'm sure they gave her a contract she's reasonably pleased with. Uh, let's see. Thoughts on fires refusing to fight in Nevada. I mean, I admire their, their guts, but it won't matter unless a lot of champions refuse to do it. And they're not going to. Are you surprised at all that Dillashaw opens as a slight favorite over Cruz? No, I'm not. I mentioned that before. Uh, if USADA and the NSAC both police fight day and night, can the NSAC step in and punish USADA for test failure and get money? No, I don't think so. They don't have any authority over USADA. Well, I mean, they have authority in the sense that they're the final authority, right? Like the USADA punishments are self-inflicted. The NSAC punishments, even, even legitimate fair ones, are government-inflicted, right? So there's a little bit of a difference there. Um, I don't know. I'll have to ask. I don't know. Someone says, hey, Luke, what does Matt Hughes do exactly? He collects a check. Uh, what do you make of the constant criticism of MMA media, and why do you think people tend to attack it? People don't just attack MMA media. They attack all forms of media. They attack sports media generally. They attack political media. Um, they attack technology media. No one... No one ever wants to like media until they get, until they're the only time people like media who aren't in media are, is when they are the recipient of glowing praise. That's it. Every, every other time they don't like it, uh, which is just part of the territory. If you want to be in media, you have to accept it. I am, I am perfectly willing to listen to media criticism because in our field, in sports generally, in political and international relations, I mean, look, the New York Times got, which is the gold standard in journalism, they got beat up for all kinds of reporting on Syria and Iraq and everything else. And I don't want to get into the politics of it. I'm just saying, like, no one is above reproach in any field of journalism for what we perceive to be constant criticism. But I guess I'm just, I try to have an ear for what sounds like somebody who knows what they're talking about. The vast majority, more than 90%. Other main criticism is is or other main media criticism is total garbage. You know, it's it's uh, why are you slam this fighter? You're a hater, or um, you know, why don't you cover this more? Or why don't you stand up to this person without really knowing the facts about maybe stories we're working on that do such things, without knowing effective ways in which to do that. 
um, without understanding what my job responsibility is and isn't, you know, either you're given too much praise or you're not given enough praise or most criticism is strictly a fan not seeing the media giving them the kind of coverage that they would like to see as a fan, which isn't my responsibility. And I'm sure people are going to be like, Meh. but you know, I, I, I mentioned this before, like, do you guys remember, even if you're not much of a basketball fan, do you guys remember when uh, Steph Curry, who I think is an awesome basketball player, I love him, I'm happy to see his success, and was having his kid come up on the stage, his very, very cute daughter, Riley Curry, and everyone was like, let's leave her up there because this is so great, and everyone's like, if you don't like Riley Curry, you're the problem. No one wants to hear media complain about doing their jobs. I don't give an F what you want to hear. This is interfering with my, my ability to do my job. Get your kid out of here. Like, okay, you know what? Uh, how about this? How about I bring my kid to your dentist office and they can sit in your lap while you try to work on other patients? Or how about I bring my kid to the opera and they can sit in first violin and, and, and see how that works. Like this idea that we're allowed to have kids at these things or you know, they, should, they should just be tolerated because no one really cares about press conferences. You may think you don't care about press conferences. I don't give an F what you think. I care about it because it's my job. And whether you think you get information that's valuable out of it is irrelevant because I know for a fact that I do. The highlights are some of the most traffic things that we produce both on MMA fighting and on SB Nation generally, both live streaming and then for clips. Um, yes, a lot of questions are bad, but then you get things like LeBron saying, I know I'm the best player in the world. Guess how many times that got circulated? A billion, because people actually like that stuff. That stuff kind of matters. I need to be able to cut, if you're a guy who works at a radio station, I need to be able to cut sound clips. If your daughter is chiming in on the mic, as wonderful and adorable as she might be, and Riley Curry is, this is an interference. Like people are like, oh, no one wants to hear the media complain about doing their jobs. You cannot like me complaining about my job and what I need to do to get it done. I'm going to do it anyway. Because if someone's interfering with your job, be you a plumber, be you a lawyer, be you a radio DJ, whatever, you're going to say something. So to all those people who don't want to hear media complain about doing their jobs, here's a giant middle finger for you because I don't care. I'm going to complain about things I think are unfair. So no kids at press conferences, please, even the adorable ones. And by the way, a big part of that was just like Riley Curry, super adorable. How about some ugly ass kid who's super annoying and won't stop crying? That person should be on the dais too. Please go take your argument somewhere else to someone who can't think critically. I'm going to complain about doing my job when you interfere with it at all times, whether you like it or not. All right, let's go back to, uh, let's see. Did you catch any of the go big press conference? Um, no, I did not. Uh, Jeff Wagenheim predicted that MMA beat on the MMA beat that Nevada will soon be the former fight capital of the world. I think he was saying that from like a honorary standpoint. I don't think he was saying that like um, all of a sudden would lose business overnight. But I mean, certainly they are sullying their reputation in in short order. Let's keep going with these questions. McGeary Ortiz, who do you got? Um, I like McGeary. You know, I like his confidence. I, him saying he's going to stuff takedowns to me is very interesting. I think eventually he will get taken down, but maybe he can pop right back up. I think his striking on the feet is phenomenal. I, I, he's got fantastic reach, obviously. Underrated hand speed. Um, good accuracy. Um, from his guard, he's a handful. Maybe he'll get past. I don't know. Um, but if his if it, if he can shore up his defensive, defensive wrestling, Tito's in trouble, man. But you know what? I'll say this for Tito. Yes, he beat Stefan Bonner, and yes, he beat Alexander Shlomenko, and you can see what you want about that. Let me look up something real quick, just to make sure I'm, I'm right about this. I know I'm right about Shlomenko. 
but I want to make sure I'm not totally botching this. Okay. All right. He was a favorite against Stefan Bonner, but barely, barely. He was a, uh, a minus 125 to a minus 115. And he's a definite underdog against Liam McGeary. And he was a major underdog against Slomenko. You know, so it's not like a lot of people thought he was going to just go do awesome stuff in Bellator. I mean, when, when him and Rampage were trying to hit each other with hammers on TNA, I was like, what is he doing? But here he is after the, 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 the Bonner win and after he just ran over Slomenko. I'm not saying those are the most, you know, that they mean the most, but we – Huge portions of the public never thought he would win either of those, and he did. And here he is on the verge of a title shot. Like, you know, people hate Tito Ortiz, and I get it. And he says all kinds of funny stuff at the, the Affliction Show and whatever the case may be. The dude has nine lives. I mentioned before about Scott Coker landing on his feet. Look at Tito Ortiz, man. 40 years old, and he's still in a title fight, headlining what's going to be the biggest Bellator show ever. <laughs> he does. He's doing something right, whether you like it or not. Like, he kind of is, you know. I like Liam to win. I'm not, I'm not here saying Tito's going to win. But, you know, if Tito can get a takedown, he's got good submission defense. He's got good passing. Um, we all know he's got good ground and pound, even from guard. So, on the feet, I don't like his chances at all. On the ground, I think that would be kind of interesting. But we'll see to what extent Nagiri can make it a, a fight on the feet. Uh, Jacek and Letourneau. During your time off, it was announced in the next women's strawweight championship match between Jacek and Letourneau at UFC 193, which I assume to be largely due to uncertainty in Gedalia's recovery timetable, right? However, despite Letourneau being ranked 10th in the division, I didn't think the fight, I didn't find the fight that questionable as she has a pretty good record, has looked good, and and the strawweight pound for pound seems kind of odd at the moment. I don't know what that means. So out of curiosity, how do you feel about the matchup, and would you agree that uh, that large reasons for them going with the fight is Letourneau's size and striking performance against Rikosi. Uh That's not who Letourneau fought in her last one, is it? It was Moroz, right? Yeah, it was Moroz. Let me pull up a record here. Well, the short answer is, oh, against Rikosi two fights ago. I'm sorry, yes. Um, yeah, you know, look, they're going to pick who is somebody they can put on a fight poster and they can sell who's doing well enough. Uh, I don't like Letourneau's chances that much. I feel like she operates at a slow pace that someone like in Jacek will just slowly overwhelm or maybe quickly overwhelm, but they got to do what they got to do. You know, I'm not going to beat them up too much. Someone says, as I was watching Invicta last weekend, I was again, really impressed by Julie Kenzie's commentary and ability to break down the technical aspects of the fight in an entertaining manner. Uh, have you ever followed her commentary and what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. I, I didn't watch that Invicta show again. I was on vacation. But generally speaking, I like it. And I like, you know, one thing I enjoy hearing, and I mentioned this too, like I've, I've given credit to uh, Brendan Shaw before for some of his uh, analysis on ESPN. Um, I like it when you're listening to a commentator, and I don't want him to be, you know, over the top with it. But when you can detect that they're having fun doing it, in addition to saying, you know, interesting things that, about the fight science of it all, that to me just seems like a lot of fun, you know? When you're, when you can have fun when you know someone out there else is having fun. If someone is like, you know, clinical and interesting, I, I value that certainly. Uh, and she is, of course, like she's that too. 
But I really like it when, you know, yes, I learned something. Yes, it's insightful. And geez, man, like they have a smile on their face. Like and I know I'm a grumpy fool and maybe that's why I like it. But she seems to be a very pleasant person. Um, and so as a consequence, it bleeds into the commentary. And because it bleeds into the commentary, it bleeds into your your entertainment um, not perspective exactly your your ability to the product is being delivered to you in a happy way even if it's two people fighting in a cage you know so um so yes two thumbs up for julie kenzie's commentary uh who do you think is the male ronda rousey but ronda spelled with an h and the rule in this live chat is if you spell ronda with an h we don't answer it <laughs> i know people get bitter about that but uh, all right, throwing out to you again. What do you feel about UFC brass not making an official comment? Uh, again, I would have preferred, but what are you going to do? Uh, good question here. Impressions of the Dynamite show before it actually happens. Luke, what are your impressions of the atmosphere before the show? You've been to several Bellator events. Does this feel different? Does it feel like the promotion is trying to change the image of the company? And is it working for you? It feels completely different. So I've been to Rampage's debut I believe that was against Joey Beltran, if I'm not mistaken. That was at the now defunct Revel in Atlantic City. I went to Rampage versus Lawal in uh, Memphis. It was just outside of Memphis, but okay, Memphis. Um, I went to the Kimbo Slice show, and now this one. It feels like this, like, you know. Rampage versus, like, Beltran, if I'm being a little bit honest, I didn't say it at the time, or maybe I did say it, I don't remember. In retrospect, and also, it wasn't the fault of the fight. It was also what was happening at Rebel, not, which is now just sitting in Atlantic City empty. Um, felt sad. You know, it was like there was hardly any people in the casino. And they sold out the theater, I think, or pretty close to it for the fight. But if you're a Rampage, you know, you're used to competing at Saitama. I must have been like, whoa, what happened to my career, you know? Uh, he rebounded, of course. But um, Rampage of the Wall was the first time I thought Bellator was beginning to turn some corners. Didn't like the fact that it was on pay-per-view, but, um, and again, we never, ever got the attendance from Mississippi, which was held just outside Memphis, but they had filled most of the arena. The live production was pretty good. I thought most of the fights were pretty good. You can see what you want about the main event with the wall and Mo, but, um, but okay. Like generally I thought the event went mostly well and, you know, it was crazy when Mo was called and Bjorn Rebney a dick rider and all that kind of stuff. So there was that. Then when I went to the Kimbo versus Shamrock one, you could just feel it was really different, you know. Um, there was way more media, you know. Uh, there was a buzz around town, a little bit about it. Um, and, you know, there was national media talking about Kim Kimbo Slice. And it was very different than the old one, but you could just feel a bubbling. This one feels like all of those combined into one, man. I saw the layoff of the arena. I tweeted a picture about it. You got people you talk to spike people they are over the moon about scott coker they are over the moon about this show you see uh, i've seen tv commercials for it here in san jose just down the street from where esther and casey and i are staying there's a billboard about it there's a total buzz around town um sap center is a really nice venue like some of the venues i was seeing before just weren't that nice you know um and like I said, they might even sell the Joker out. It just, it, you know, not every show will be a dynamite show. The way it'll work is be regular shows, tent poles, and then one, maybe two a year, but mostly one a year, dynamite shows, right? That's the tier. And there was tons of media yesterday from all over, from uh, the Fox, remember that Revenue signed that big deal with Fox Sports Latin America? All those guys are here. 
it, you know, it feels like, you know, when you've got media here from the local newspaper, all, all the local radio stations are here. It's crazy to watch them here, you know, and you get international media, at least the, yes, they're the broadcast partners, but they're here covering it. Um, um, you got French media here. It, it's, it is for, from what I saw when the rampage debut to this are two completely different universes, completely different universes. Uh, and I can see why Spike is very, very happy. We'll see what the ratings look like, but this is a, this is, this is, you can see why they got rid of the, I mean, and people were like, what about the Bantamweight tournament in Thackerville, Oklahoma? What about it? All right. We got to get going. Um, please give this a thumbs up if you enjoyed it. I'm sorry that it had to take place on a Friday instead of a Wednesday, but you know, it's the best I could do. The camera looks to be a bit crooked. I'm just realizing that now. I apologize for that. Um, if you would give us a thumbs up, I'm a busted ass knuckles, y'all. If you can give us a thumbs up and then you could share this, I'd be very, very appreciative of it. Share it on Twitter, share it on Facebook. Let folks know. Thank you so much for watching. I will get this podcast up on iTunes and SoundCloud very, very quickly. I so much appreciate your patronage. I so much appreciate you watching. I'm back. For better, for worse, I'm back. Everything will be back to normal for scheduling, Monday Morning Analyst, and uh, live chat on next week. Until next time, stay frosty. <laughs>